Welcome to the ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Let's go back to 1 Samuel. We started last week, we looked at, um, we were looking at the life of Mephibosheth, and we never even got to Mephibosheth. But one of the interesting things about the life of Mephibosheth is really his life has nothing to do with him. His life has to do with his father and his father's friend, which when it gets down to us, that that is exactly who we are. Paul said, my life is not my own. I was bought with a price. So my life's not about me. That's just, a, that's just a fact if you're a Christian. Your life is not about you. And I know being a good American, everything's about me. Especially 20th century, 21st century Americans. Life's about me. It's the pursuit of my happiness. It's the pursuit of my freedom. It's the pursuit of my pleasure. It's the pursuit of it's all me. Me, 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 me. I remember in, in the 60s, and believe me, the 60s generation was, if there was ever a messed up group of people, it was those of us that grew up in the 60s. But when the 70s came, especially towards the end of the 70s, they were describing that the 70s kids were me. They, it was the me generation. And I remember even thinking then, there's not a lot of change from, from my generation. There's really, if you, if you go to the root of it, there's not a lot of change in any generation since, since Adam and Eve fell. Life became centered around me and mine. And, and Mephibosheth is a perfect example. His life, whether it was good or bad, wasn't really about him. It was about his father and his father's generation, and, and in particular his father friend David. David ruled Mephibosheth's life, whether Mephibosheth was aware of it or not. Amen? Now, we saw last week, and I'm not going to go through this a lot, but in, in 1 Samuel 17, we saw this, this picture of Goliath. And Goliath stood on this, on this hill. They were in this uh, region. I, I equated it to a state, the state of Indiana. They were in this region um, called Ephes Damon, which literally means the edge of blood. It's, it's talking about the blood covenant. They were existing, living in this blood covenant. But they were positioned between two towns, on two hills with a big valley in between them. One of the towns was Sukho, one was Azka. Sukho means to entwine, to tie up, to bind up. And Aska means tilled ground, or it represents prosperity. You plant, you, you reap. You sow, you reap. It's talking about getting stuff. And, and God doesn't have a problem with us having stuff. He has a problem with um, stuff having us. But as long as the stuff doesn't get into your heart, you know, uh, Jesus said, a good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, bring forth, brings forth good. 
He also said, where a man's treasure is, there his heart will be also. Which I always found it fascinating. He doesn't say where a man's heart is, there his treasure will go. He says, where you put your treasures, where your heart will follow. So whatever you sow into, that's where your life's going to follow. And let me just be honest with you, and I'll, I'll confess my sin here. I sow a lot more time into television than I need to. I, sell, I, I sow a lot more time into reading things that, that, that don't grow me spiritually. Not that I'm reading anything vulgar. Well, I'll explain. I read too many political commentaries. For one thing, when I get done, I usually want to throw a rock at something or go grab a, you know, find a dog and kick it. I want, I, it makes me angry. And then every once in a while, it's like you're sitting there and it's like the V8 commercial. You just want to smack yourself in the head and think, I could have been reading something that, that would build me up rather than something that, who cares? They're not asking my advice about it anyway. Now, that, that does not mean that I don't want to be informed about what's going on in my world. But believe me, if, if there, are, there are two kids that have indigestion in the middle of the Sahara Desert, CNN, Fox News, ABC News, all the news stations are going to have live coverage of it tomorrow or today. They, they throw a lot of junk at us that's just distractions. And it, we allow it to distract us. It distracts us from what's really important, and that is that Goliath represents the devil, and he's standing in the middle of our blood covenant, screaming at us and saying, you're not going to prosper in anything, because I'm going to tie you up. I will defeat you. And we're over here worried about some stupid political race in a, in a, a, a district that's not even in our state. And sometimes we're, we're concerned about a political race that's in another country that we're not even a part of. I know I'm, I'm, I'm speaking politics this morning, but I'm going to tell you, I'm more and more, more and more, Lord keeps, and maybe this is just for me. I don't think so, but maybe it is. If, it, if it's not for you, just ignore it, set it on a shelf. But more and more, he's dealing with me, forget politics. It's, it's temporary. It's like the weather. You don't like it, wait 24 hours, it will be different. I mean, you want a shock. I, I got in a plane in El Dorado, Arkansas yesterday. It was 80 degrees. It was 9 o'clock in the morning. Sunny. Man, it was beautiful. Flew. Beautiful blue skies. Now, there were a lot of clouds under us, but we were above the clouds. We were flying around, flying along. Wonderful. I love to fly. We got here. We went through the clouds, and we bumped, and I don't do well with bumps. And, you know, I, I was glad I had the very small breakfast when we went through that. And we came out, and it was rainy, and it was dreary, and I climbed out of that plane. It was 38 degrees, and I thought, I went the wrong way. <laughs> and that's exactly what TV will do for you. And I'm not preaching against TV. I'm just saying it will take you the wrong way. It will take you from sunny and 80 to 38 and overcast. And you look around and you think, how did I get here? You got here because you got on the wrong plane and went to the wrong destination. 
If our mind's not set on, on, if we set our mind on Goliath and what he's saying, we're going to stand there and quake and be in fear. But if we're like David and we look at him and say, who is this uncircumcised Philistine to come and assault the, the armies of God? We're Israel, for criminy's sake. Why are we quaking? We went into, into the promised land and whole cities just collapsed in front of us. And we're afraid of one man because he's big? And he went after him and he killed him and cut his head off. But if you notice, when David went after him, he, didn't, he went after him declaring what he was going to do. You can't chase your, your giant and go into battle silently. You go into battle saying, I'm coming after you. And I'm coming after you because you have no covenant. And I have a covenant. And my covenant is with the Most High God. And by His name, you're, you're already defeated. It's just a matter, I've got to sling the rock. And when the rock comes, you're going down. And once you get down, I'm not just going to leave you down. I'm going to do what Psalm 89.20 said a minute ago. I'm going to give you a beat down. I'm going to take your sword and I'm cutting your head off. And I'm going to feed it to the birds. We have that kind of position. This was David who was unsaved. He had a covenant and he knew his covenant. But he wasn't even a saved man. He was just a man who knew God. And it made him bold. Now, getting back to Mephibosheth... I want you to go to 1 Samuel chapter 18. David and Jonathan, Mephibosheth's father, made three covenants. The first one we looked in, in chapter 17, and David came, defeated Goliath. He got the attention of Saul, of Saul the king. king said, not sure who this boy is, but I like him. Well, he liked him and he hated him at the same time because as he got to know him, he, he recognized, because Samuel had already told Saul, God's ripped the kingdom away from you. You're not anointed to be king anymore. And your family's not going to inherit this kingdom. And the anointing that you used to walk in, you no longer have. And believe me, if you've ever been under the anointing, you know when it hits and you know when it leaves. And it doesn't just come for, let me just explain, it doesn't just come for preachers. The most anointed message I've ever preached, I did from the front seat of my car to the back seat of my car where my kids were actually listening to me. To the point that my teenage son, now my son's bright, and he is a good man, and I tell him every chance I get what a good man he is. But as a teenager, he was a teenager, you know, there, there's, a, there's a switch in a brain that when you hit, when you have that 13th birthday, it goes to off. And they do the dumbest things. And sometimes that switch never comes on. Because I've met some 60-year-old teenagers. They're still just as crazy as they were. But usually sometime late teenage years, early 20s, you come back to normal. But even when he was in the crazy stage, we had this talk and when I was finished, he said, wow, Dad, that's good. And there was a correction in our talk. And I thought, that had to be God. And it was anointed, but it was. I felt it. I felt when the anointing came on me to talk to my two kids. 
But I believed God for that because I'll be honest with you. I tried to be a good dad. I rarely was. I failed. I failed in a lot of areas of my life, and that is probably the greatest regret. There were so many areas I was not a good dad. But I tried. That's what I see in David. David knew, God, I can't do this without you. I can't do anything without you and without your anointing. And, but David was believing for it. He saw that. That was the lens that he saw everything through. I have a covenant with my God. Saul looked at David, and when he saw that anointing, he recognized it, and it made him hate David and love David at the same time. In that way. One minute he wants David to play the harp and soothe him. The next minute he's chucking a spear at him. But David and, and, and Jonathan, the second they met, something happened. 1 Samuel chapter 18, let's look at, at, start with verse 1. Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, this is David, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. The, the, the Hebrew word there for covenant, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, literally is only used to refer to a blood covenant. What we talked about last week with, with Abraham, that God wanted to make with Abraham, and he had to knock Abraham out, and he actually made the covenant between God the Father and God the Son, because Abraham would have never been able to keep it. And all of eternity rested on that covenant. It was one of several that God made. But the picture of that is they split animals, they did all kinds of things. It doesn't really say that they went through that whole formal procedure, but there was a covenant here made between David and Jonathan. Notice in, in verse 4, at this point in their life, Jonathan is the, the, the king's son. He's rich, he's famous. David is a shepherd boy who just killed Goliath. So he's known as a warrior, but he doesn't have beans. He's not rich. He doesn't, you know, he has a, a shepherd's clothing on. In his, in his household, he's the little squirt that we send out to keep the sheep, and nobody likes him. Verse 4, though, this is how Jonathan consummated this, this covenant with, with David. He says, And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David, with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, I don't even want to do this, but I have to throw this in here because our world is so perverted that the LGBTQ 730 letters added to that community will tell you right there that Jonathan and David had a homosexual relationship. That's why Jonathan gave him his cloak. No, absolutely not. It says in the verses before that, that David loved him with his, with his soul. They were very good friends. And if you're a man, and maybe this is true for ladies too, never been one, so I don't really know how you think. I love you ladies, but you are a mystery to all of us guys. 
But for a man, if you have one good friend, count yourself fortunate. Because it is not easy for two men to, and, and by a good friend, I mean you can get totally um, open. You can expose your heart to them, the good and the bad. And they will not judge you, but they will support you, they will pray for you, they will encourage you. That is the hardest thing I've ever had in my life. And I, I've tried it on more than one occasion and had it come slap back at me so hard. Especially when you reveal the nasty part of your life. You reveal some sin that you've struggled with. And, and let's be honest, sin is like a little dog. There, you, all of you, if you think just for a second, there's one practice of sin, that that's your weakness. And that's the one that, I don't care how long, you could have conquered it for 20 years. It still yaps at your feet every once in a while. And it's, it dogs you, it dogs you, it's always there, it's always there. And, and if you get, let's just be honest, if you get really tired, you get really discouraged, you get really depressed, it's easy to slip back on that thing. That's where your area of temptation is. And, and they're, they're all different. And, and the, the, the saddest cases are the people that think, well, that area for me is not really that bad. So I don't worry about that. No. No, Dean mentioned, you know, what, what, what we seek more than anything is holiness. The, the, the greatest example of holiness is just following Jesus. It's not the absence of smoking, drinking, carousing, whoring around, cussing, doing all of the fleshly sins. To be honest with you, most of those are fairly easy for, for Christians. We can take care of those big ones. It's the little ones. That really dog us. It's the gossip. It's the backbiting. It's wanting to hold grudges. It's wanting having the attitude towards people. You hurt me or mine, especially mine. And I'll, I'll, guarantee, I'll just be honest, that's one of mine. If I know you say something hard about my wife or my kids, well, it's hard. I, ha I have a hard time pulling back from that one. I want to get that spirit of beat down on me. That's why Jesus says, vengeance is mine. Don't you dare think about doing that. Well, it's hard if you feel like some of your family's under attack. It's really hard. But if you, if, if you can find that person, that one person that you can go to and say, I need help. I need help. I, for the 9,000th time, I've slid back into this and I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm lost. If they will grab you and say, you're not lost, we're going to 1 John 1, 9. We're going to confess that before God. You're going to get cleansed of that. And you're standing in righteousness. As soon as we finish this, you are clean. You are holy. And I'm going to pray for you. And, and, and then not just pray for them there, but pray for them for an extended period of time. Because it, let's face it, God forgives instantly. I take a while. And I really take a while when it's me I have to forgive. Because I'm, I'm, sometimes I'm not very friendly with myself. Because I know I should know better. I know I do know better. And yet sometimes you do them anyway. But 
This is a blood covenant between David and Jonathan. It's not something weird that somebody's twisting. But notice in verse 4 again, when it says Jonathan took off his robe, this is exactly what Jesus did for us. He's given us the robe of righteousness. That doesn't just mean he's made us righteous because he did that when, when we were born again. He took that old stinking creature and made, it a, made you a brand new creation, just as holy, just as pure, same nature that he has. But it also, he took the robe of his righteousness, his actions. He gave us the capacity to walk in the same anointing that he walks in. Now, it won't be exactly the same because he had the Spirit without measure. We have the Spirit in measure. If we had the Spirit without measure, then we could have the same, um, the same experience that Jesus had on the Mount of Transfiguration. And if we did, if I could manifest that right now, just snap my fingers, it would be great. It would be great for you, but when it was done, there would be a little pile of ashes here. Because my flesh, because my flesh is still intimately connected with the sin of the fall, my flesh couldn't handle that anointing. It would burn me up. little side thought, but you know, I like to chase squirrels. And I can't go back and prove this, but, but just you can accept it, and I'll give you some scriptures if you're really interested. But Jesus said that, or John the Baptist said, when he saw Jesus, he said, here's one that I'm not even worthy to, to tie his shoe. But when he comes into his glory, this is a rough paraphrase, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, if you look at the day of Pentecost, it says that they were baptized in the Holy Spirit and tongues like unto fire, which means that it wasn't exactly the fire that John was talking about. It was a measure of it. But this is the thought I want to leave you with. The same fire that anoints us and empowers us. And at some point after we are, are resurrected and we get our brand new bodies, recreated immortal bodies, we will have that fire on us to the point that we will be like Adam and Eve before the fall. We will not know that we are naked and we will not have clothes on because we will be clothed with the glory of God. That same fire that will bless us beyond measure, beyond imagination, for a sinner will torment and destroy. The fire that, that, that burns like a worm that never turns in hell is the glory of God, and it's torment to someone that, that, that doesn't deserve to be there. That's why when we manifest the, the fire of God... It can be a torn, it will drive sinners off if they're not receptive to it. It will make people, it's part of what Saul experienced. I love this anointing that David has on, but it drives me crazy. It torments me. And he'd pick up something and want to kill him. Jonathan, they were just knit though. He gave him his cloak. That means he also gave him his identity. You, we've heard in modern society, you know. You dress for the position. Meaning if you come in casual, you come in sloppy, you're going to work casual and work sloppy. And there are a lot of corporations that still have that philosophy. Not as many as used to, 
but still a few. When you come to work, you better have, if you're a man, you better have a suit and tie on. You better have your shoes polished. If you're, you know, a woman, you better come in dressed appropriately. You dress for business and you dress for success. Well, that's part of this. Jonathan's the king's son and he just, when he gives David his cloak, he says, you stand alongside me. You're, it's, it's as if you are the king's son because we have a covenant. Everything that's mine is now yours. That's a pretty good gift. But notice he also says, he gave him his armor. Even to his sword, his bow, and his belt. To give a man your armor means you became totally naked to them, not in the physical sense, but you expose yourself to where it only takes a small dagger to reach your heart. You want to know why it's so hard for husbands to get along with wives and wives to get along with husbands? Because in that relationship, if you're going to have a relationship, you have to get vulnerable to one another. You have to expose your heart, or you're just roommates that has sex. Let's just face it. If, you're not, if you can't be open and share your, your strengths and your weaknesses with your spouse, then you're, you're going to limit that relationship. But th- the problem is when you do that, you open yourself to get hurt. My wife can hurt me faster, quicker, deeper than any human being on the earth. Why? Because I open to her more than I open to anybody on the earth. And it's, that's also why you have to walk in forgiveness really well with one another. Because sometimes she'll say things that hurt me and she doesn't even know that she said anything. And I got a wound. And if you know anything about dogs, you, you wound them. When you go to reach for them, they bite. And there are times, and, and I'm using her as the villain, let me tell you, that the reverse of that is true more often than not. And there's been more than one time we're driving down the road and suddenly I feel an iceberg sitting next to me and I realize I said something. Don't know what I said. Don't know how I said it, but I know I said it. And I'm guilty. It's not that I'm saying, hey, you know, we, we, and usually we want to defend ourselves. We want to say, well, that wasn't my intention. Well, it may not have been my intention to step on your big toe when I walked up to you, but if I broke your toe, you still hurt. So it, it, we have to be able to walk in forgiveness and, some, and your spouse or a good friend comes and says, you know, what you said really bothers me. Like, man, I'm sorry. And you have to be willing to say, it's not a problem. But I will tell you, if you try to be friends with someone and that happens a lot, or if you are in a relationship and that happens a lot, you start to build walls. Walls will come up. Because you can only hurt me so many times. And I will, there, will, there will be something comes up. There's going to be a defense comes up that I'm not going to let you step in that close anymore. And that's why you end up sometimes with, you know, 30-year marriages that were just roommates at the end. It's sad, but you also have that with friendships. <coughs> Saul and, or David and, and Jonathan, though, Jonathan said, I will, I will let you get so close to me that my armor's all gone. I, I, I'll give you my sword. If I give you my sword, I'm defenseless. That is a great covenant. It shows that David honored him and became vulnerable to David. 
to the fact, especially for Jonathan, when he knows, you know, at this point, he already knows his dad's not real fond of David. So he's opened himself up to attack from his own father. If you go down to um, verse 13. This is the second covenant. This first one is just a, a general covenant. We're best friends. I'm going to be open and vulnerable to, to you. But in, in the second one, David reciprocates. Chapter 20, let's go up to verse 3 first. It says, Then David took an oath again and said, your, your, your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know, know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. This is David talking to Jonathan, but the first part is the most important part. It says, David took an oath again. The rest of that conversation is, look, David, or, or Jonathan, I know there, I'm one step away from death with your dad. And they're going to, to concoct this big, um, um, elaborate scheme where David's going to not show up for a banquet at Saul's banquet, and Saul's going to ask, where's David? And Jonathan's going to lie, basically, to, to his dad and say, well, David had to go back home and do something with his family, and, you know, and then we're going to see his reaction. If his reaction's to kill me and you know he's angry at me, then you come and let me know this way. If his, if his reaction is to not harm me, then come and let me know this way. That brings us to verse um, 13. It says, But if he is angry, this is talking about Saul, and once you killed, may the Lord strike me and even kill me if I don't warn you so you can escape and die. May the Lord be with you as he used to be with my father. And may you treat me with the faithful love of the Lord as long as I live. And this is the, the, the second covenant. But if I die, treat my family with this faithful love, even when the Lord destroys all your enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a solemn pact with David, saying, May the Lord destroy all your enemies. And Jonathan made David reaffirm his vow of friendship again, for Jonathan loved David as he loved himself. This was the second pact. The first covenant was just between David and Jonathan. This second covenant... Uh, Jonathan expands it out to include Jonathan's family because he's already recognized the anointing that used to be on my dad is now on you. Which means you're going to be king. And if you become king, I am the heir to the throne. I may not live. You do what you have to to me, but save my family. Save my kids. That's a real worry for Jonathan. He knows that he and David have a, a pact, but he also knows that David has a band of mighty men. And let's face it, when later on in, in David's life, when Absalom um, rebelled against his father, David wanted nothing to happen to his son. And one of his mighty men that this can't stand. This boy rebelled, and I know my, my, my king says don't kill him, but he's going down. And he killed him. Jonathan's got that same concern. David may not order my death. It doesn't mean I'm not gonna, I may not die. 
but please take care of my family. And that's what this second covenant does. If you drop down to um, verse 42, let me get over there. It says, Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me, between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Then if you go down to chapter 23, still in 1 Samuel, chapter 23, verse 17, David is out in the wilderness and, and Jonathan comes to warn him. It says in, in verse 17, And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you, even my father, Saul, knows that. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed in the woods, and Jonathan went to his own house. Here they extend this covenant again to the point where David says, Jonathan, I'm telling you, not only if, if, when I become king are you not going to die, but you're going to be my second in command. That's unheard of. You don't take the son, the rightful heir of the king... And make him your second in command. How do you trust that person? It's hard to do it. There are, there are um, states in, in, in our state governments where, um, they're in, and actually in our country it used to be that way, when two men ran for president, the, the winner became president, the loser became vice president. Well, buddy, you, you're looking over your shoulder a lot. And yet David was, was totally unafraid to make Jonathan second in command. Now, it, it might have been a little, and, and I don't know that the Bible really says here that this was Jonathan's suggestion, but, but if it was his suggestion, that's a little bit presumptuous on that friendship to make it that way. But, unfortunately, David never even got the chance to deal with, with um, Jonathan being his second in command, because they, or Saul and Jonathan went to battle together and died together. And you know the story. We've already looked at it briefly. When, when that happened, word came, Saul and Jonathan are dead. The, the maid of Mephibosheth picked him up, ran off because he thought, they thought Jonathan or David's coming into the city. Once this, the, the, the enemies are defeated, he's going to come back and take over the kingdom. Jonathan's family is dead. So this evidently was not a well-publicized covenant between David and Jonathan. But David was aware of it. And if you go to, um, <clears throat> and I want to just close with this for today. We'll, we will, we're not done with this yet. But go over to 1 Chronicles chapter 8, verse 34. And this is... This gives you a little insight into what happened to Mephibosheth. Because remember, Mephibosheth is in hiding. And literally, the name Mephibosheth means shame that will break into pieces, shatter, and scatter into your corners. Mephibosheth, his very name means shame. And not just, I'm a little ashamed. It's shame that just shatters you and scatters the pieces all over the place. You know, there's, there's things that happen and things will break. And then, well, recently, I, one, I was bringing Marge to church. So this has been months ago. 
it was cold, and I hit my um, defroster for the back window. And she and I were driving down the road, and I, I literally, I thought somebody had shot the car. We heard a wham! And we both jumped. And I thought, what in the world was that? And I looked up in the mirror, and my back window, the, the heating element had shorted out. And I mean, it sounded like a gun went off when that thing shattered. And there wasn't a piece of glass, it, there, an eighth of an inch cubed. It shattered into a million pieces. And it was like, okay, now it's cold. i got to get to church. And the second I stopped anywhere and shut a door, it just all fell out. And it's designed to do that. When it breaks, it doesn't just break, it shatters. That's what they called Mephibosheth. You are one, you are so shameful that you just shatter into a billion pieces. And we're going to scatter you everywhere. But if you look at, at 1 Chronicles chapter 8, verse 34... This is talking about Jonathan and his son. It says the son of Jonathan was Meribal, and Meribal begot Micah. Well, if you would look at one of the other genealogies, you find that the father of Micah was actually named Mephibosheth. But he wasn't named Mephibosheth at birth. He was named Meribal, at birth, and Meribah, Baal is, a, is a, a type of god or goddess. It can be Baal, it can be uh, Ashtaroth. It basically, if you want to figure out what, what uh, Baal worship considered or, or consisted of, just think of we're going to go party and, and, and drink as much alcohol and do as many drugs till we just get totally senseless and then just have sex with anybody and everybody all at the same time. That's the worship of Baal. But Meribah means to contend with. So when, when this young man was born, his father named him, and he said, you are going to contend with the gods of my enemies. That's your destiny. That's, your, that's who I'm naming you after. You are going to be raised as one who contends with the gods that are opposed to Israel. And yet by the time we get to the story of, of David coming back and looking for this young man, his name is morphed from a, a mighty man who's going to contend for the faith to you're just a shameful, shameful person to the point where it just shatters you in every direction. And there is a, there is a, um, a whole philosophy of raising children Fortunately, it's gone out of vogue, and it wasn't in vogue long, but I remember when it came through in the, I want to say, early, early 70s, that you, you, you correct your children by shaming them, if you really want them. And, and I remember I, had a, a, I was working for the government at the time. I was teaching Head Start when Head Start was brand new. I was one of the very first Head Start teachers. And we, we served lunches, and, and it was in a little school. Um, Catholic church had a little school, and we were doing this in, in the, as a summer program. And the cook and her daughter was just a toddler, and her daughter would want to go do something or would do something, and um, she needed to be corrected. And the mama would say, you need to stop that. That's shameful. And she'd say, no, that's okay, mama. And she said, no, I don't even love you anymore. 
And she'd walk away from her. And that little girl would start crying, run up and grab her mama's leg and say, Mommy, Mommy, please, please love me. She said, well, not if you're going to act that way. And I thought, and I'm, this, is, this is when I'm, I'm probably, I'm well into my gross years. I'm into my stupid time. And I'm thinking, that's a horrible way to raise a child. That's a horrible thing to say to your child. I'm not going to love you because of the way you, you behaved. And yet how many times we wouldn't say it, but we live it. Our kids do something, and it's like, hmm. Gina and I have joked. Um, I forget it. We, were, we really were joking. It was about something that I think we were talking about, something that Ryan or Tiffany did when they were teenagers. And I looked at Gina. I said, yeah, that was your child. <laughs> and you do that sometimes when, you, when you're gathering, you've got kids at home. It's like, you know, my mom and dad used to say, my mom would yell at my dad and said, Raymond, your sons need you right now. Boy, when we, we heard that, there were, there were two, you're, my God, you may die, words. That was one of them. The other was when you heard Dennis John Scott. That meant she was so mad, she didn't know which one she wanted, but she wanted all of you, and right there. And it was like, oh, three of us are here, one's going to die. I hope it's not me. But, but when you heard, Raymond, your sons need you, you know mama's not happy. She's not claiming you right now. Dad's children need to be disciplined. And she'd call dad to come do the... Now, that, don't, don't think for a second my mother didn't discipline because, wow, my mom pulled me up shorter than any... In fact, she'd do it quicker than my dad would and make you burn worse than my dad ever hoped to. But my point is, this is what happened in this young man's life. He was born to, to stand and, and be a champion of Jehovah and defeat the Baals. I mean, this is what is when, when Jonathan, when he was born, Jonathan took him, he said, Son, you're going to stand for our God. And you're going to go forth and contend with the evil gods that are oppressing our nation. And by the time David saw him, he had been transformed into an object of total, utter shame and disgust. And yet David, when, when, when he needed something... He said, Go, is there anybody in Jonathan's household left that I can bless for Jonathan's sake? He didn't care about Mephibosheth. For one thing, he didn't know Mephibosheth was alive. Mephibosheth certainly wasn't coming up to him and saying, uh, King, I'm Jonathan's son and you, know, you all had a covenant. He was hiding out. Why? Because he had been told for years. You're just a shameful object, and if the king gets hold of you, he'll die. He, you'll die. He hates you. He'll kill you. Now, when, when they ran, this is, this is uh, interesting. They ran off to a, a place, and this is where Mephibosheth left, called Lodabar. From, from five years old to adulthood, he lived in Lodabar. Lodabar literally means dry places. He went from the king's palace to a dry place. That's not a good place to be. Now, here's the question. How did he, be, go, how did he morph from Meribal to Mephibosheth? Well, go back and, and I know I said, I get three closings before I start lying. Go back to Genesis chapter 3 
And let's look first at, um, we'll start with verse 9. And I'm going to read through this and then I'm going to go back and, and uh, pick it up and, and just note a couple of things. Verse 9 says, Then the Lord called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, meaning God, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, Well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle, more all of the more than every beast in the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. You shall bruise his head, but or he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Now, I want to look at a couple things, and I'm going to go backwards here real quick. Notice that, that, that God, if you keep going in this, you will see that one of the very first things that God does, because Adam and Eve are clothed with fig leaves. If you know anything about plants, you pull a leaf off of a plant, it's going to wither pretty quick. You sever it from life, it dies. Well, if it dies and withers, you're not covered very well. You know, so God almost immediately comes in and it says he killed an animal and he took the skins and clothed Adam and Eve with the skins. That killing an animal means God came in and made a covenant with Adam and Eve to cover them because they were naked. They didn't have any protection. You realize humans are the only animals in the world without fur. We have hair. You have as many hair follicles on your body as any mammal out there. They just don't grow fur. They don't grow long enough. The hairiest person that you know is not hairy enough to survive without, in a cold climate without, weather, without um, clothing. You can't do it. You'll freeze to death. That's part of the curse. So, but God provided for that. But there were consequences. For, for the man, you're going to work for what you get. You don't, you don't work, you don't eat. Paul even said that. Because they had people going to the, to the uh, mountainside and waiting for the rapture. I don't have to work. That's part of the reason the Jerusalem church ended up, Paul had to take up offerings and bring it back to them because they were all poor. Because after Jesus resurrected, he said, I'm, you know, the angels told him, the Jesus that you saw return this way is going to come back in the same way. And they all sat down and said, okay, we'll wait on him. And the rich sold everything they had and everybody quit working and they sat and they ate together and they shared everything and it didn't take too many years and they were broke to the point where Paul finally had to come and say, look, if a man won't work, he can't eat. 
Uh, my favorite saying to my, my child, my son when he was little, Tiffany too, you want something, get a job. Now I joked with them when they were real little, but when they got older, it's like, I can, I can give you this much, but if you want more than that, you're going to have to go get a job. You'll have to earn a little money. And summertime they worked. My son, uh, for a long time, because I wouldn't let him work at night when he was going to school because he had a job, it was going to school, but he'd get up at 3 o'clock every Sunday morning. He'd be at McDonald's at 4 o'clock, and at 8 o'clock he was done because he had to come home and get cleaned up to go to church. So I told him he wouldn't miss church for work. And he did it for a couple of years in high school just to earn a little side money so he could have his own pocket money. I was like, wow. I admire that. But there were consequences for their sin. Don't think there, there wasn't. But notice the, the, the scenario they go through here. He asked Adam, have you eaten from the tree? Adam's first response, yeah, the woman you gave me gave me the fruit. It was diversion. Don't look at me, God. Look at her. And what did Eve do? She said, well, the serpent gave it to me. And then when, at that point, he turned on the serpent because he knew that the serpent was, was filled with the devil, and he cursed the serpent. He didn't give any, there was no redemption for the serpent. This is your curse, and it's permanent forever. But then to Adam and Eve, <clears throat> he punished them according to, notice he said um, to Adam, he said, because you took of the fruit that your wife gave you, you're going to work in, in sweat and toil for the rest of your days. And when you die, you're going back to the dust because that's where you came out of. He cursed, the curse came in a proportion to the excuse, not necessarily the sin. Which is a good thing to do when, when Nathan came to David and gave him the story of the, the rich man who destroyed the one lamb that the poor man had. David pronounced his own curse. Because I've had people argue, well, how could, how would, why did God kill that little baby? It wasn't that baby's fault that David and Bathsheba had adultery. God didn't kill that baby. David did. David said, that man needs to die that did this. He, he was the king and he pronounced the, the punishment for his own crime. But God needed David to bring in Solomon. So he said, David... I'm not going to allow it to happen to you, but it is going to happen to your child because of what your word said. David pronounced his own curse. But this is what I wanted you to see, and this is what, what, how it re relates back to Mephibosheth. Verse 9, the Lord called to Adam and said, Where are you? Adam answered, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. That's what shame always does. It's what sin always does. It brings shame and you want to hide it. For God's sake, I'm not going to be honest with anybody. I remember one time I got honest with a pastor and I went to him and I said, this, I'm having problems with this. I heard a sin about that or a sermon. I heard that sin mentioned in a sermon for the next year. And that pastor never, never, I never was honest with that pastor again. Why? Because every time he mentioned it, and I had heard, I'd sat under him for a long time. I'd never heard that sin mentioned. But I went to him with a problem and said, I need help. And instead I got judged. And he never mentioned my name from the pulpit, but he mentioned my sin. And he kept mentioning it and kept mentioning it and kept mentioning it. And I just knew, this is not a man you can confide in. 
Doesn't work. Somebody confesses something to you, you need to keep your mouth shut. You need to take it to God. Don't you dare spread it abroad. But notice, verse 11. What was God's response when David said, I was naked and I hid myself? The only response I want to look at is the first four words. Who told you that? The whole response was, who told you that you were naked? But when you go to God and you say, God, I've got this in my life. This is who I am. I was born Maribol and now I'm Mephibosheth. And God looks at you and he says, who told you that? You didn't hear that from me. And if you didn't hear it from him, who cares who else called you that? Don't call yourself that. And don't let other people tell you that about you. You want to know who you are, you get in this book and you see who Jesus says you are. That's who you are. You're not Mephibosheth, you're Maribel. You are created and named by God Himself to represent Him against the gods of this world. And the God of this world will come and tell you, ah, oh, you're just a shameful thing. How can you preach the gospel? How can you share anything with anybody? I saw what you did. I know what you thought. I saw you in your private time. You nasty, dirty thing. And God says, who told you that? Who told you your name's Mephibosheth? That's not who you are. You are sitting with me in heavenly places. You're sitting with me right next to the Father. That's the, that is the position of authority and power. To sit at the right hand of the king meant just like the third covenant that David made with Jonathan, I'm your second in command. And Jesus looks at you, and I've heard this said, Jesus doesn't need my money. Jesus doesn't need me. Don't you believe it? Who told you that? Jesus needs you. You are vital to the kingdom. He needs your money too. Because he doesn't have cash. You look at the dollar bill you pull out, it says United States of America. It's not heaven's money. It's your money. And he says where you put your treasure, your heart goes. That's why he needs your money. Now this is not a pull for money. We've already taken our offering. But if you can't give God your money, you can't give Him your life, and your heart will not go there. Money is important. Let's just be brutally honest. The church can't function without money. We turn these lights on, IPL wants a check every month. We, you go out and get a drink out of the water fountain, the water company wants a check every month. Everybody wants money, and we have to have money to do it. That's not my point. God doesn't want your money because He's broke. He wants your money and He wants you to sow and tithe and sow beyond the tithe because the more you do that, the more He can bless you and your heart will be knit to Him. I'm always generous with my kids. I would spend myself broke if I had to. I just want to bless my kids. I love them. But that's what God does with us. He wants the best for us. He wants our heart. He wants us. And when, when, when the devil tells you, you're worthless, what can you do? 
God looks at you and he says, who told you that? Your name's not Mephibosheth, your name's, your name's Maribal. Now get out there and whip the devil's butt. That's the Roberts version of that scripture. I want to leave that thought with you this week. I want you to, and, and I know, I know because I get to deal with it. There are going to be things that happen that will make you feel like you're about that tall. You're going to do things. You're going to say things. You know, you may vent at somebody down the road because they can't really hear you. God hears you. When you do that, the devil will come say, yeah, look at you. Great man of faith and power. You can't even, somebody can't even cut you on traffic without you. If, 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 if you controlled rockets with your eyes, they'd be a smoking ash heap right now. In my mind, I just blew them up. Well, that's not a good thing to have, you know. You need to train yourself. Oh, Lord, bless them. They must be in a bigger hurry than I am because they're driving crazy. You know, Gina and I joke every time we go through Waco, Texas. These people name this place appropriately because they drive like a bunch of wackos. This week, when the devil says, you're just shameful, no good, nothing. God can't use you. God will never use you. He doesn't need you. He doesn't really even want you. He's angry with you. Go on, get in his presence. He'll zap you in a heartbeat. God's response is automatic. Who told you that? It's not, I didn't name you Mephibosheth. I named you Maribel. You're my child. I raised you up and assigns your, your, your destiny to be one who contends with the God of this world. And not only that, but you used to be a, Mer- a Mephibosheth, but I made you a brand new creature. I raised you up and seated, with me, seated you with me in heavenly places. I've given you my name, I've given you my anointing. Whatever comes against you, I will be there. We just read it in Psalm 91 earlier. I will give my angels charge over you. <clears throat> you got the entire host to heaven willing to fight for you. And if the devil can fight his way through every angel and get toe-to-toe with you himself, and he's got all of hell behind him, he's still got you, the Word, and the Holy Spirit to contend with, and he cannot win that battle. I pray for the angels, but I don't depend on the angels. It's the Word that puts me over. If I'm going over, I'm going over because of what God promised me and my faith in Him. That's why faith is important. Because without faith in Him, I can't please Him because when I don't have faith in Him and in His Word, I call Him a liar and the devil is the liar. (coughs) The God of this world is the liar, not Jesus. So just remind yourself, when you have those thoughts, who told you that? Don't name yourself Mephibosheth. Remind yourself, my name is Maribel. I was born to contend with the devil. And he doesn't stand a chance. Because not only can I whip him, but Jesus has already given him a beat down. He beat him down. He stomped him. He drug him with a collar around his neck all around hell. And said it made a show of him openly. He drug him around hell and said, this is your champion. And this is what I did to him. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana, or visit us online at FCCIndianapolis.com.